If you would please be turning in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is where we're going to be spending a majority of our time this evening. When we read through the Bible, we see several different scenes of an individual walking into a throne room. Have you ever thought about that? How many different times does someone walk into a throne room? Maybe it's Moses returning back to the place he had called home and walking before Pharaoh's throne with an audacious request that he would let all of those Israelite slaves go. Or it may be that we're reminded of Esther. Remember the decision she had to make to go before the king? And since she was going without being summoned, her very life hinged on whether or not he would acknowledge her, whether or not that scepter was raised and acknowledged her presence. That determined whether she lived or died, and yet she took those bold steps of walking into the throne room. In this chapter of 2 Samuel, Nathan is taking a bold step of going into a throne room. He's going to confront King David, whom up until now he's given very positive prophecies to. We know David is a man after God's own heart. In fact, if we think about filling in this blank, David and, we'd usually think about David and Goliath. And if David and Goliath was David's most well-known victory, then probably the most well-known sin committed in David's life, we'd fill in that blank, David and Bathsheba. Just a chapter earlier, that's the story that we learn about. David not only committing one sin, the sin of adultery, but compounding that with the deceit that takes place, ultimately making sure that Uriah, who is listed in Scripture as one of his mighty men, someone who is true to the cause of the Israelites, is killed. And we see uh, this chain of events take place as sin stacks on top of sin in David's life. And it's in this scenario that Nathan the prophet has to walk into David's throne room and to confront him. Can you imagine the fear that he would have felt? How would you have felt being in that situation? I don't know if we fully appreciate what it would be like to go in front of a king. When we think about the country in which we live, we have the freedom, especially during a political season, to have late night talk shows and and comedy sketch shows poke fun at our elected leaders and people make jokes about it. And there's no fear of reprisal. There's no fear of the death penalty for being disrespectful uh, to one of our leaders. We have the freedom to do that. And yet, in Nathan's society, it would have been very different. He was taking a very serious step. It's interesting that after this great sin David has committed, you see a little parallelism. It hadn't been too long ago that a younger David had walked in to the throne room of King Saul and told him there was a problem. There was a physical problem. Goliath was out there and Goliath had to be addressed. No one was willing to fight him. And David said he was willing to fight him. Now Nathan is walking into David and saying there's a spiritual giant out there. There's a spiritual giant no one's talking about. The sins that have been committed. And someone needs to be confronted about that. This isn't just about confronting a king. This isn't just about confronting a ruler. It's about confronting sin. And as we watch Nathan confront David and his sin, I think we learn some valuable lessons on confronting sin in our own lives. If you would begin reading with me in the very first verse of 2 Samuel chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David... And he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he brought and nourished 
and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And look at the way David reacts to this. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives. Very, a very serious way to frame this statement. As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And then look at Nathan's response to that. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. As we think about confronting sin, the way in which Nathan handles this is a, a, a brilliant example of what needed to be done, accomplishing that in a way that would be very effective. And I believe that teaches us some lessons about confronting sin in our own lives. It's not pleasant. This couldn't have been a pleasant task for Nathan. It's not a pleasant task for us to be confronted about things that we've been doing wrong. It's never pleasant to be confronted about that, is it? It's never pleasant to go for, to a, a dentist appointment and to realize you haven't been flossing the way you should. And if you're asked the question, have you been flossing lately? You're going to have to be faced with the choice of, well, do, do I be completely honest or do I, I try to kind of skim over that and let them find out on their own? Maybe it's a doctor's appointment. You're not sure. Have you been exercising the way you should? Well, and we're, we're just, it's just so difficult for us to look at our own lives and see what we haven't been doing that maybe we should be doing. It's even more difficult when it comes to sin that's in our lives. To have to confront the sin and the mistakes that we've been making. There are a couple of things that I believe we can take from this confrontation. Number one, he had to tell David the truth and he had to tell him the truth about his sin. And if I need, if I need to confront sin in my own life, it starts with me telling the truth about sin. He had to name his sin. David had to be able to name exactly what he had done. It's, it's almost as if you're going to the doctor and you've had uh, some problems and there's some kind of disease. That disease has to be diagnosed. It has to be named. And it's almost a little more comforting even when it's, it's in a terrible situation because as soon as we can diagnose it, we can figure out what to do to fix it. And so this sin had to be diagnosed. It had to be named. And so Nathan has a very creative way of doing that, it allowed David in telling this parable to sort of lower his defenses. Did you notice that? David would have been used to passing snap judgments in situations. Just imagine how many of those kinds of situations had been brought to David, and David makes his snap judgment of this is what needs to be done, and he is the king, and his word is law, and it's taken care of. So this isn't something David is not used to, but he's presented it this way, his defenses are lowered, and when he gets so angry about what's taken place, you can almost just even see from, from Jesus' teaching that plank that's in his own eye as he tries to pick the speck out of the eye of the man in the parable. You can almost see that there, blinding him to his own sin, but he, he's very able, easily able to pick out the sin in the story. Isn't that true for us? It's so much easier to spot what other people are doing wrong than what we're doing wrong. David had to tell the truth about his sin. The truth was... He had seen another man's wife and decided, even though he knew full well who that man's wife was and that she had a husband, he decided that that's what he wanted. And after he had sinned and all, there were consequences of that sin in that 
that she was expecting a child. Now he decided to cover that up. And the end result of that was him being, being deceitful and duplicitous with, with the man that served him so well, Uriah, finally ending up in Uriah's death. That was the truth about David's sin. He had to confront that. He had to name his sin, and to his credit, in verse 13, he does respond by saying, I have sinned against the Lord. He names his sin. He says it out loud. He might have thought it, but he's saying it out loud here. And if you'll notice, it's after he makes that statement that Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Only after David is willing to be truthful about his sin does Nathan tell him that forgiveness is in place. I think there's something to that. He had to be willing to admit his sin, to admit what he had done. You know, sin is not a very popular word in our society. Uh, We prefer to use uh, other terms, maybe uh, alternative lifestyles or personal decisions or personal choices. We don't like to use the word sin. It, It just... There's something about it that sounds so overly negative. We, we just hesitate to use it anymore. I don't know if you saw the results published by the Ellison Group that did a survey in March of this year. And it's a fascinating survey that listed how many people thought specific actions were a sin. It tells you a lot about the people that were surveyed, what percentage thought that a specific action was a sin. Just an example is reading through that list there were more people in America who thought it was a sin to keep extra change when a cashier has given you change back than thought premarital sex was a sin or abortion was the taking of an innocent life. Doesn't that tell you a little bit something about our standards of what sin is? Not that any of those things are right, but isn't it interesting that we've gotten into the habit of defining what is or isn't sin And depending on who you ask, you'll get a different answer. David's sin had to be named, and we have to name practices in our lives that are sins. We have to be honest about it. We have to be honest with ourselves. It's difficult. There's a really interesting little passage that takes place in the chapter before this one, in chapter 11, in verse 25, when Joab sends word back to David. He sent word back what has happened in the death of Uriah the Hittite. Now, you may remember that David had given Joab very specific instructions that Uriah was going to be placed at the front of the line where the battle was the heaviest and that Joab was to make sure that there there were men who drew back, that Uriah's life was taken. And so Joab followed through those instructions. Now, it didn't look like very good war strategy. And so as Joab sends word about what has happened, he tells the messenger very specifically, when you tell all this to King David, be sure you tell him that Uriah... Is dead. Because then David would know that Joab had taken his instructions seriously and had done what he had asked. And so it's interesting to see this statement that David makes when he responds to Joab. He tells him, he sends back with the messenger, don't let this thing displease you. Don't let it, don't let it worry you. Don't let it concern you. Just, just you know, redouble your efforts on the city and we'll take them again tomorrow. Don't let this concern you. He's comforting Joab for this decision that's been made. He says that just a few verses later in verse 27. We see a very ominous ending to this chapter. At the very end of that verse when we read the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Did you notice that? It didn't matter what David told Joab. David could tell Joab, don't worry about it. 
Don't, don't let this concern you. Don't lose any sleep over this. But that didn't change the fact that it was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. I think that's powerful. Don't we live in a society full of people who look at things that are sinful and say, you know, I wouldn't lose too much sleep over that. I mean, that's something everybody around here does. I mean, everybody in her class knows that, that we cheat when it comes to those homework assignments. I mean, she probably even knows it herself. It's not that big a deal. I wouldn't lose any sleep over it. But does that change the fact that it's evil in the sight of God? I mean, everybody in the company does this. I mean, you'd pretty much be the only one who didn't take advantage of this little loophole. It's not exactly ethical, but everybody else is, is doing it. It's not that big a deal. I wouldn't lose any sleep over it. Don't worry about it. But does that change the fact that it's displeasing to God? It didn't in David's case. David was in a position of authority, but he didn't have the authority to determine what was sinful and what wasn't. And we don't have that authority either. And it's tempting for us to want to claim that for ourselves. But we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to identify our own sins. We don't get to make the choice of what sin is. And we also need to understand that when we sin, did you notice David's response? He says, I've sinned against the Lord in verse 13. In the 51st Psalm, which is attributed to David during this time of life as he's uh, making his relationship right with God, he would say, against you and you only have I sinned in verse 4 of Psalm 51. David understood that above all else he had sinned against the Lord. Now certainly he had taken some terrible actions. We don't read about Bathsheba having too much choice in the situation. Uh, we don't know many details about that. We definitely know that his, his choices cost Uriah his life. But, but above all else, he'd sinned against God. It reminds us of what happened with Joseph. Do you remember when he had risen up to such a powerful level in Potiphar's house? And Potiphar had Joseph in second in command. and didn't take any concern with his household as long as Joseph was in charge. And then Potiphar's wife begins making advances to Joseph over and over again. And then finally... One day, she corners him and he responds by saying, how could I do this evil thing and sin against God? He didn't say, I would feel terribly guilty if this happened. He didn't say, I would get in so much trouble if anyone found out. He said, how could I do this against God? Ultimately, it would affect his relationship with God. Or maybe even years later, when the prophet Samuel is confronted by the Israelites... And they want a king just like every other nation. And Samuel feels like he's been rejected. He feels like they've rejected him. And when he goes to God about it, God says, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. Because ultimately, our responsibility is to the Lord. And David understands that. And if I want to confront my sin, not only do I have to identify it, I have to identify that, that above all else, it's a sin against God. My sins will affect other people on earth, but before anything else, it affects my relationship with God. If I'm struggling with uh, dishonesty in a relationship at home, it doesn't just affect my family, it's affecting my relationship with God. If I'm struggling by, by doing things that aren't pure, living a life that's not pure, it doesn't just affect my future, it affects the future of my relationship with God. And the more we understand that, the more important it becomes to truly confront this kind of sin in our life. So his sin had to be identified and also his consequences had to be identified. And there were consequences to this sin. If all we had was what's written in 2 Samuel, we might think that David really hadn't thought too much about the consequences of his sin until now. But it's interesting to see what's recorded. If you would turn in your Old Testament to the 32nd Psalm, 
in the 32nd Psalm, we see that this is usually attributed to David during this time. And he says in verse 3 of the 32nd Psalm, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Did you hear the consequences David would already have been experiencing? His body wasted away through groaning all night long. That's what happens when we keep our sins silent. When we keep it locked up inside. It might make us feel better that no one else knows about it, but inside we're wasting away. And in a room this large with as many people here, Chances are good that there's someone here tonight that feels that same feeling. Being wasted, wasting away, being eaten up from the inside out. I believe Satan would love for you, if you're feeling that way, to walk out the door and be convinced there's no hope to take that feeling away. What David shows us is that there is hope. And it's it's my prayer that no one would leave this worship assembly this night feeling that way. If that's the way you feel right now, if sin feels like it's eating you up inside, we'll have an opportunity for you to come forward to confess your sins just the way that David did. And to have a group that's loving and caring surrounding you to help you through that time. Let's not leave here without understanding the truth about our sin and the truth about the consequences we face. Nathan even specifically lays out some consequences. As we see right after he accuses David... He says to him in verse 7, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, as if that wasn't enough, I would have added many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now here come the very specific consequences. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Interesting there, it doesn't doesn't refer to her as Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah. Just a reminder of what David had done. The sword should never depart from his house, and we continue to read in 2 Samuel and find out that's true. We see what takes place with Amnon and Tamar, the end result of David's children, one brother taking the other brother's life. As Absalom is enraged, the sword shall never depart from his house. Not only that, but he says in in verse 11, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. We'll see later on that Absalom rises up wanting to take over his father's place as ruler of the kingdom. From his own household, evil intentions would surface. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Later on in this book, we'll read one of maybe the most strangest, maybe the strangest acts of defiance that we would see out of David's family is when, based on advice he's been given, Absalom takes David's concubines that have been left after David's fled Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he'll take them up to the roof and fulfill this prophecy so that everyone will know. Not only that, he says, Indeed you did it secretly in verse 12. I will do the same thing before all Israel. We read later on, it was done in broad daylight under the sun. 
Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, by this deed, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. And there's the fourth consequence. The child born to him should die. You see, David's sins affected him. They affected his life. That inner feeling of wasting away isn't something we would wish on anyone. Terrible consequences. But the consequences of David's sin extended far beyond his own life. I heard an older preacher one time use the phrase to describe a sermon on this topic. How much is your sin going to cost me? And I thought that was a pretty poignant way of stating the fact that our sins don't just affect us. It's not just about us. Think about all the people that were affected by David's sin. Obviously, Bathsheba was affected by his sin. She ended up losing a son and a husband. Uriah was affected. And as we think about the way in which Uriah was killed, we're also told in 2 Samuel 11 that there were other soldiers who perished during that time. I wonder how many families were affected because of the orders David gave to cover up a sin that he had committed. Have you ever thought about that? Do you think that if David, when he was there on that rooftop contemplating what was going to happen, had he been able to count the cost of his sin, don't you think he would have done something differently? If if he had truly understood what his sin was going to cost everyone else, don't you think he might have changed his actions? I wonder how my behavior might be different if I counted the cost of the sins that I'm engaged in, if I'm struggling with sin... I wonder how much different it would be if I counted the cost before I I've went through with the temptation. I wonder if I thought about how it would affect my family. This that's taking place here, a, a sin in my life, what if I stopped and thought, how will this affect my family? How will this affect my children, my grandchildren, my friends? How, how will this affect them? What negative effect could it have on their life? If we did that, it's very likely we would sin a lot less. Maybe it's a good idea when we're tempted to stop and count the cost. Who else would be affected? We need to be able to know the truth about our consequences, but there's another powerful truth that's in this story and that's in the story of each one of our lives as well. And that is, even after David's sin, God's grace was available. It ends here on a note of grace. We see that David is forgiven. And the gospel message all throughout the New Testament shows us people that are forgiven of sins. And you may be sitting here thinking, well, David's sins were terrible, but you just don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know the kinds of sins I've committed. When we read through the New Testament, I'm blown away when in Acts chapter 2, Peter is addressing the people who had killed, who had put to death by crucifixion the Son of God, and they are able to have the same internal inheritance that we can have today. When we think of sins that we've committed, God's grace is available. Now, it required a change in life. It required David to admit what he had done, to turn his life around. The same is true for us. We're going to have to be honest with ourselves. And that can take courage. You may or may not have heard the story of a doctor that lived in the early 20th century, Dr. Evan Kane famous for working with Kane Summit Hospital in New York. And at the time in which he was practicing medicine, 
when a simple, what today we would consider a simple procedure, an apodectomy would come up, they would use a certain kind of anesthesia that was very risky. It wasn't, it wasn't a localized anesthesia, it was very general. In fact, some people awoke from the operation and they were paralyzed by the anesthesia. And he was convinced after years in medicine there had to be a better way. And so as, as he went through all the options, he developed a localized anesthesia that could be used just in a certain area and that could allow someone to recover much quicker. His only challenge was finding someone who'd be willing for him to try out this new kind of anesthesia. And so the patient was found, and so the operation was set up, went into the operating room. He had had performed over 4,000 of these appendectomies before, and so he did things just as he had always done. The only difference was this patient was able to recover within a matter of days and leave the hospital. And probably the most fascinating thing about this entire story that took place on the Tuesday morning, February the 15th, 1921, is that Dr. Evan Kane was operating on himself. He couldn't find anyone else willing to go through with this experimental procedure, so he performed an appendectomy on himself. Think for a moment about the kind of courage it would take, even if you were a trained physician, to operate on yourself, to realize, hey, there's a problem here. I want to take care of this. I want to operate on myself. When we think about sin in our lives, it's going to take courage to confront it. It's not going to be pleasant. But we have a blessing that Dr. Kane would not have in an operating room. And that is, we're not in this alone. When we confront our sins, we have a Father who created us, who loves us, who desires that everyone come into a saved relationship with Him. And I can identify my sins, I can confront my sins, but I can't forgive my sins. I can't perform an operation on myself that'll take my sins away. But I was created by a God who can. The blood of Christ can perform an operation that no surgeon could ever dream of, taking away the sins that we have to confront in our own lives. And so this evening, as we've been challenged by Nathan's story confronting David, as we've been challenged to confront sins in our own lives, it may even be that you've thought of something specific that you're struggling with. It may be that you feel a little bit like David in the 32nd Psalm, that you feel like you're wasting away inside, and no one else knows about it. Even your closest friends and family members don't know about it. Even the people that are sitting around you don't know about it, but it's something you struggle with day in and day out. There's grace available. There's relief available. It's found in submitting your will to the Lord's, putting Christ on in baptism, performing an operation, the Bible tells us, that's, that's not done with hands, but it's an operation that will take our sins away, will allow us to live in that forgiven state of life. Or it may be that you're living in that state of walking with the Lord, but there are some serious sins in your life that need to be confronted. There's no better resource of friends and family members, spiritual family members right here. There's no better group of people I can think of to help you in that battle, to help you go through what's going to be difficult, and yet... As we look at David's writings in the Psalms, we can see how relieved he was, how glad he was that he finally turned his sins over to the Lord. And you can do that today. We're going to sing an invitation song. And if there's anything that needs to be confronted in your own life, we'll all leave here with a great deal to think about, to challenge ourselves in our own journeys of faith. If there's anything that that we can help you with or that you want to make known in a public way, as we stand and sing, why don't you come and make that known to us?